Dear Lord, we praise you for this passage in James. Thank you that we can open it up this evening. I pray that anything from me as I preach would be forgotten and anything from you in your word would be remembered and applied. We pray this in your name. Amen. Unity Mitford was a woman in a very unique position. She was friends with Winston Churchill and friends with Adolf Hitler. In the late 1930s, in fact, she even became part of Hitler's inner circle. By all accounts, she was a bit of a nutter. She actually stalked Hitler for nine months, uh, sitting in his favourite restaurant every day until... Uh, she caught his eye. And eventually she did achieve success and they became very good friends. Now, now Unity was so convinced that Germany and UK could live in harmony that she wrote multiple times to Winston Churchill pleading with him, imploring him to avoid war and keep the peace. However, when war broke out between her two beloved countries, she was distraught and sadly, she attempted suicide, and later she died after the war. I could tell you a lot more about her quite bizarre life, actually, but more importantly, she provides a stark example of how keeping friends with two different sides between two enemies does not end well. And that brings us to our passage today in James and it's directed at a group of people who are also flirting with two different sides of a very different war. James is actually addressing a certain bit of the church who thought so highly of themselves, so wise and understanding in, in chapter 3, verse 13 there. And, and they also had sound theology. But, but actually, James saw straight through them. He saw that all this stems from selfish ambition and that phrase is actually repeated in verse 14 and verse 16 if you look there on the outside these guys look great we know from elsewhere in the letter they, they were wealthy ambitious and well-versed they knew their theology they like the church they, they like God but they also like the church, because they love power, they want power, they were using the church for selfish gain or selfish ambition. And the question we should ask ourselves today, is it possible that this reflects something of us here at St. John's? Theolo theological, wealthy, but do we too try and be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time. And, and that brings us to our first point. Friendship with the world means enmity against God. So if you would look down with me at chapter 4, verse 4, James writes, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So, so what does friendship with the world look like then? Well, well, the passage actually tells us that being a friend of the world means damaged relationships, both 
horizontally, i.e. with others around us, and both vertically with God. So, so let's have a look at the horizontal view first. Um, James is clearly concerned with the state of the relationships between believers in the church. Look at, look at verse 1 of chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? I'll read on. You want something but don't get it. You kill and cover it, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. The term quarrel and fight here is, is a bit weak, actually, in our translations. It's, it's more battle or war and all that comes with that. So loss of loved ones, enemies, misguided alliances. James is using these words to demonstrate the heartbreak caused by infighting Christians. And, and, and clearly there are some power struggles going on here. Uh, we can imagine, can't we, different groups of a church and they're all fighting, battling it out for the most power. And what is causing these fights, these quarrels, these battles? Well, well James is telling us it, it is the desires that battle within you. And James goes further, it's these desires that cause us to kill. It points to the extent believers will go to get their own way. These desires might be seeking positions of leadership within the church. They may be gaining greater prestige or popularity among the believers. But, but clearly, it is at a cost of others. Those caught in the crossfire are the ones that end up suffering. That is why it's so tragic. That is why James, elsewhere in his letter, refers to the widows and the orphans, the weak, the needy. They are the ones who end up suffering from these power struggles. So this select group of people and, and their desires are essentially building themselves up and pushing others down. They're building themselves up and pushing others down. And sadly, th this happens in faithful, Bible-believing churches today. Y you may have known of what happened to Mark Driscoll in, in the United States. Sadly, he demonstrated his own selfish ambition by using church funds to buy out his book to get it to the bestseller list. Uh, his motives were for his own personal gain. He was being friends with the world and causing damaged relationships with other believers and with God. We might look at the Mark Driscolls of the world and, and think, well, that can never happen to, to us. It can never happen to me. But let's examine our own hearts. Why did we go for that committee position or that ministry? Is it simply because we want to serve Christ and his people? Or is it because we like power? We like people knowing we're important. So, so when we volunteer to be a part of this committee or that ministry or this leadership team, are we testing our hearts and our motives? A few diagnostic questions to help further on that. How do we feel in that ministry when we're given criticism or feedback? How willing are we for people to disagree with us? Do we get angry or flare up? When people ask those questions or give that feedback, does that expose where our heart is? 
Having said all that, perhaps that speaks mainly potentially for 10% of this room and you're sitting squirming a little bit. But then there's the other 90% of this room thinking, well, this isn't me. I'm, I'm not going after positions of power at church. I, I've never entertained the idea of serving at a kids' group. I don't really want to help out at midweek either. But maybe, if we never had a desire to serve, why not? Could we too be using the church for our own selfish ends? Are we still being friends with the world? So whether you're someone who's seeking power or influence or, or whether you're someone who's just using church and not seeking to serve it, either way, we're doing those things for our own selfish game. We end up doing what the world tells us to do, push others down so that we can build ourselves up. But friendship with the world does not only cause damaged horizontal relationships with other Christians. It means more significantly a damaged vertical relationship, i.e. our relationship with God. Look down with me again at at verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. It's pretty stark, no? James doesn't hold back. He's clear-cut. Friendship with the world, I pursuing your desires and our pleasures above anything else, means choosing to be enemies of God. Of course, James, I must stress, James is not saying here we have to exclude the wider world, we have to become a monastic community, shut out the wider world, and, and never be friends with a non-believer. That's not what he's saying. His concern is that the motives of the world could enter our hearts and impact our relationships with others and with God. But as we have seen, friendship with the world means prioritizing our ambitions. And and it even has damaged how we can pray to God or how we pray to God. So look at verse 3. When you ask, for example, for positions of leadership or, or positions of power at the church, You do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. The world says we're in a zero-sum game with a finite amount of opportunity to demonstrate our worth of what we do. Our selfish desires love this, don't they? They play to it. We seek prestige, power, and impressive positions, and perhaps beyond, and that is our aim. We, we think to ourselves, I can serve God and be seen as powerful and important. It, it makes no sense. It is like Unity Mitford trying to be friends with Hitler and Churchill. They're, they're enemies. Unity Mitford's position was not possible in the long term. She was trying to side with both camps and it was never going to work. War was inevitable and she could not cope with the fact that she had to choose a side. Like unity, we often try, try and side with both camps. It is never going to work. Friendship with the world means enmity against God. So we need to choose wisely. Are we still trying to side with both camps, with God and the world? Are we doubling up? 
Thankfully, God has graciously helped us to choose wisely. And my understanding is, we see a glimpse of this in in verse 5, if you have a look. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? God longs for us not to be friends with the world, to not pursue our desires, but to choose him as his spirit dwells in us. How are we to do that? Well, our next point helps us understand that in more detail. So, friendship with God means humbling ourselves. And before we look at what it means to humble ourselves, I want to actually think about, well, how are we friends with God? How can we be friends with God? Well, whether we're seeking a position of power or influence through selfish motives, or or maybe we're just using the church for our own selfish gain and not serving, whoever we are, verse 6 is a wonderful truth. Let me read it. But he gives us more grace. But he gives us more grace. God gives more grace. Let me read that again. He gives us more grace. What an incredible truth James draws our attention to. He reminds the church that God is incessantly gracious. Even though we do try and side with both camps, and even though our desires, our selfish ambitions, damage relationships, God gives more grace. His grace is endless. What fantastic news. How is he gracious? Well, well, given what James has just mentioned in his letter, the bitter envy, the selfish ambitions, our desires, and despite our unfaithfulness as believers, he still, he still through Jesus, has secured for us salvation. And if we believe and trust in what Jesus has done, we are friends with God. He's never going to stop being gracious. He longs for us to come back to him. And even when we turn from him and befriend the world's ways of getting by, we may often push ourselves up and others down. He does not want us to turn back to being friends with the world. He still desires full-fledged friendship with us. And, and thinking of God's incessant grace, I, I struggle to think of uh, an adequate analogy, but I thought of fun we can have with um, a bottle of Diet Coke and a packet of mints. Um, however, for the sake of the church floor and probably a bit of health and safety, uh, we might not do it in here. Um, However, when you do mix these things together, it actually gives a great image of God's grace. The chemicals react inside the bottle and the Diet Coke overflows out of the bottle. But it doesn't just overflow, it shoots out of the bottle. His grace is overflowing. He keeps giving more. But unlike the bottle of cola and Mentos, when the chemical reaction runs its course and eventually the overflow stops, that's not the case with God's grace. God gives more grace. So, if we are a Christian here today, then firstly, we should rejoice. It's a great truth. The God of the universe loves us so much, he is gracious enough to keep loving us. And thankfully, he does not score on our behavior at church. He does not seek and love those who are more powerful more prestigious, or more popular, or more responsible. No, 
he gives more grace. We can keep coming back to this truth again and again. And it will never cease to be true. So, so do we trust this grace? Are we still tempted to side with our selfish ambitions and friendship with the world for our own personal gain? We must remember that this grace is a gift that keeps on giving, literally. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, then may I encourage you to explore God's grace more. Please do ask someone here today, maybe someone you came with, or, or, or myself, or, or Callum, why is it such good news that, that God gives more grace? So we, we've looked at what and how we can be friends with God. Now we can find out what humbling ourselves looks like. And as I said earlier, James is clearly an honest and quite blunt writer. It, it could be easy to read the first part of verse 6 and think to yourself, cool, I can now do what I want. I mean, I guess God gives more grace, right? James wants to make clear to his readers that the right response to this truth means humbling ourselves. Look down with me at verse 6 again. But he gives more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We see from the verse a reminder that those who are proud, who are friends with the world, are in opposition with the God Almighty, the creator of this world. And that is not a great matchup. James turns to a proverb to show that actually the right response to grace is humility. And from there, there is a series of no less than 10 imperative applications that illustrate what it means to humble ourselves, submit to God, resist the devil, come near to God, wash your hands, purify your hearts, grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning, and humble yourselves. He is outlining the appropriate reaction to God's grace. The shard. The building you can see from pretty much most semi-high points in London. It stands at 95 stories, 309 metres high, and is Western Europe's tallest building. However, what, what many people don't know is the foundations actually drop 53 metres below ground level. There's about 10 London buses stacked on top of each other. You see, when building the shard, they had to protect the building against the wind, ground movement, and make sure it stayed standing. The only way to do that was to go down before building up. Was to go down before coming up. And it is a bit of a loose illustration, but that is what James is calling on his readers to do, to go down before going up. That is why James calls his readers to submit, to humble themselves, to come near to God and show a brutal self-awareness of our sin. We are called to pull ourselves down before God lifts us up. So verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And what does it mean to be lifted up? Well, one day, if we are followers of Christ, then like him, 
will be honoured like him as an heir of his and we will enter a new creation with him. So James has given his readers a stark contrast, hasn't he? he he's shown that friendship with the world is enmity against God. It means pushing yourself up and others down around you so that you can get what you desire. Compared to friendship with God means humbling ourselves. We're pulling ourselves, our pride and our desires down so that God can lift us up. It is the complete opposite. And it is actually a clear-cut choice and one we all need to grapple with, whether here at church as we pursue acts of service for our own prestige, popularity or power, or if we're just using church for our own selfish gain and coming and going as we please. The world tells us that selfish ambition, our desires, seeking power, are good things. But compared to that, do we find humbling ourselves appealing? Do we find it appealing? If not, we must ask, why do we keep going back to the world and the world's tactics to building ourselves up? And to finish with, whether you are a Christian or, or not yet a Christian, there is one person we can look at the sorry, there's one person we can look at as the perfect model for humbling ourselves. To be friends with God and not friends of the world. And you see, Jesus is that ultimate example. He possessed all power. He even possessed the world. And yet he gave it up. He became man. He humbled himself to death on a cross. He came down. And ultimately, Jesus has been lifted up. He rose again and is alive today and is King and Lord both now and forevermore. He is the ultimate example of humbling ourselves. So we too should follow in his footsteps. The past few weeks we've heard how Jesus was the ultimate faithful friend the ultimate wise friend. Well, well, this week, opposed to being friends with the world, Jesus is our ultimate humble friend. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for these challenges in James. Please help us to not be friends of the world and an enemy of you, but help us humble ourselves and remember that you have given us the ultimate example in Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.